welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. Louise Bain is a best-selling historical fiction writer of books set mainly in the early half of the 20th century. Her novels explore turbulent times, social change, ideas and themes still relevant today. People Like Us, also published in the US as Daughters of the Reich, is a blistering look at the forbidden love between Hetty Heinrich, daughter of a high-ranking Nazi officer, and a young Jewish man named Walter. Welcome, Louise. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. I absolutely loved this book so much. I've read both of your books, but this one particular really hooked me in. And I think I was trying to understand why it was, and it is a, a very tender love story, but it also reads at times like quite a tense thriller as their relationship unfolds and Hetty takes all these increasing risks to be with Walter. Can we maybe just start with telling me about the premise for the book and where the idea came from? Sure. So um, this idea sat in my head for probably 10 years before I came to tackle it. Circulating uh, away. Yeah, circulating away. And I mean, the inspiration really was my father's family who came over from Germany as Jewish refugees in the 1930s at various points in the 1930s. Um, and I, my father died when I was 17 and he never really spoke to me about his time in Germany, how it was growing up in Leipzig. So that part of his life was a total mystery to me and I had this idea that I wanted to write about it um, but I didn't know enough to and it didn't seem like an exciting enough story to write a non anything non-fiction so it was always going to be fiction and so basically I just started researching and I think I, d I honestly can't even tell you where the idea for the love story came from it just <laughs> Arrived. I never intended to write a romance but as I did more and more research I I suppose what I wanted to do was get inside the heads of the people who embraced in just a few short years this horrendous ideology and where where all this hatred came from mm. and I felt that the most powerful way to tell this story was inside the head of a young person who was really part of those who were most targeted by the Nazis, a young impressionable girl. Also because that story has not been so much told by from a female perspective and from a sort of female Nazi perspective. And I felt the most, you know, the counter to hate is love. Uh, so it sort of arrived organically. <laughs> That's um, why, isn't it? The story itself is entirely invented, but every aspect of of the history and the setting and everything is 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 based on fact. I can tell you, you did some meticulous research, but it was really clever because those are the I always think that that subtle dismantling, almost you know, you getting inside the brain of a sort of a so called Nazi devotee and then detailing the unraveling of her fascist beliefs. That's a really difficult thing to write because it's it, it involves a lot of nuance and subtlety in writing but you did it really really deftly and, and it was the writing was sublime it was so clever the way you did it how did did that just sort of come naturally how did you tackle that dismantling almost there was <laughs> never one point I felt where she just suddenly went light bulb moment this is a terrible ideology because it was her own father wasn't it who was a high-ranking 
I think um, I'm I'm laughing because um, well, I, I mean, I shouldn't. It laugh. wasn't lazy to you. <laughs> Thank you very much for for saying all those lovely things about the book. But it, and 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 I think if you're a writer and you look at finished books, it's always easy to think that those books just flowed straight out of the author. That is so not the case in most cases, I would say, certainly not in mine. And I mean, it took so many rewrites of that book and so many incantations. So to start with, I actually had two points of view. I had Walter's point of view as well as Henry. Oh, really? I had told it, first of all, in third person past. Then I sort of experimented and changed it to first person and then present tense. So it had a lot of it went through a lot of changes and I think only in all those rewrites did I become, was I able to sort of really... But I think you need to sort of almost put in that hard graph to pull the purest sort of gem out of the lot almost, which is obviously what you've done. You've plucked the purest story from it, but that's the process of writing, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's a little, I sort of see it a little bit like a sculpture. You start off with this great big, piece of rock and then you slowly chisel it away the outline of a figure and then but it's all the all the chiseling chiseling that you find that I really like that description that's quite a visceral but it's also a very vivid description because I can see that and I and it reminds me actually of a quote that I heard um I think it was the author Sue Moorcroft said that when she's editing and somebody said it's like a a sculptor who's sculpting a, 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 a sculpture of a horse and they say, well, how do you know what to do? And they say, well, if it doesn't look like a horse or feel like a horse or sound like a horse, it's got to go. And yeah. it's the same in storytelling, isn't it? That you're chiseling away. A hundred percent. Until the, finally you get your finished product. And that's, and it looks so, and it feels so effortless to read, which is, I think, what people will find interesting to know the graft and the rewrites and the structural edits that go into yeah. producing yeah. the final piece of work. Definitely. And I <laughs> I'm really interested you saying about your your father um you know obviously fleeing that Nazi persecution as well did that add an extra element to you because this is a personal history for you did you find then therefore that when you're writing it that there was that extra not a burden but responsibility to him and to his memory and his experiences or were you able to set that apart I did throughout the process and I mean this book took me about five years to write so it was a long process but the I think the responsibility I felt was to the whole of the Jewish population as no small responsibility my, my father was Jewish my mother is not Jewish so I am not Jewish in the religious sense at all and my father was a very secular Jew I felt very slightly detached you know I never I never suffered I never had any hardship Mm. I felt like who was I to tell this story um but I wanted to tell a story and I firmly believe anyone should be able to tell any story as long as they do sufficient research and and handle the subject sympathetically so that was always in the forefront of my mind I wanted to get this right and I think that's also why some people I I know you know I don't read loads of reviews but early on I did read some reviews and uh, some people said you know oh I didn't like the ending I won't do any plot spoilers but no we won't give it away maybe not what people are expecting or hoping for and but I did that ending because I wanted to do justice to what I felt was 
the ending for a lot of people and that sort of sugar-coated ending was not right for a book like that. It's not without hope and happiness. There are some elements of that, but it was it was a mixed ending, I suppose. Yeah. And I felt strongly that I didn't want it to be a sort of happy ever after ending because that didn't feel right. I think that might demean as well the experiences yeah. of people during the Second World War to sort of sugarcoat and put a saccharine kind of ending on it because life's not wasn't like that was it exactly exactly right it was an ambitious thing to tackle because it was it your debut or was it was my debut yeah yeah, it was the first book I've ever written um and I think I had because of the personal connection and I know a lot of first people's first books don't make it but because of that personal connection I felt like I never wanted to give up on it so even when I had you know gazillions of rejections and all the rest of it I just carried on <laughs> grafting away at the I was like not going to give up on yeah. it I love that determination and also I think if you know in your gut that this is the story that you need to tell mm. it's often not a case of it's just a case of I have no other choice but to see this through that's how I feel sometimes about stories yeah. get under your skin and that you yes. are powerless to do anything else but write them yes and I think I think well, it's interesting because I was having a conversation with my agent the other day about stories and novels. And she was saying that a story in itself isn't a novel. And it's about finding the angle, finding the way into that story that is going to be. It, it might be a fascinating story to you, but it's got to be fascinating yeah. to everybody. And so it's often finding the angle or the way to tell it or something about it that gives you that way in and I think that sometimes that's the hardest part and that's why I had to rewrite it so many times I was trying to find that way yeah I totally agree actually I think it's sometimes finding what is that what is the aspect of that story that is the most interesting and I think for me it was the fact that Hetty had fallen in love with so the jeopardy was there straight away wasn't it she was you know as the Nazis rose to power and her father's becomes this rises up very quickly through the ranks and then she's got this long lost love Walter who's Jewish she sees the jeopardy straight away but also it was the interior her interior world as she began as it began to unravel and she began to see her father what he had become what obviously she bucked the trend at this point what why is it do you think that sets some people apart to think differently from the mainstream how was she able to step outside of her comfort zone her her family everything that she knew to stand up and say, no, I don't believe this, this is wrong. And she was a young woman as well. That's a really, really good question. And um, it's, it's, I think, partly why I made this into a love story because I had to really question what would make somebody who was so brainwashed into thinking a certain way change their mind about something. And, I mean, of course, there are some people that, but they are very few, actually. Yeah. If we we all put ourselves into the shoes of, you know, your life, your family's life, your children's life is going to be put in danger unless you toe the line. How many people really would risk that? Um, Very, very few. And And that's why, you know, dictators are able to succeed. And so it had to be something really big in her life, which was she'd fallen in love with someone and he was able to show her a different side of of life and it could it could be it could be a friend it could be anything I suppose that that does that but I suppose that's why I I chose that 
course. It was a relationship you grew to care about. You rooted for them and you wanted them to find a way to be together, even though increasingly just looked like that was just impossible. And I loved the way that you drew in the Kinder Transport Scheme, which is the programme, I think it was, which transport, I think it was, if I'm right, 10,000 children yeah. out of danger, um, persecuted many Jewish children, um, in which thousands of desperate mothers had to send their children away from safety. And it's quite, quite timely, I was having this conversation, because yesterday I met up with a very dear, very old friend of mine called Henry Glantz, who in two weeks will be 99. And he, yeah, he's an astonishing, he's a remarkable man. He's a walking library book. He told me how he was the last child to um, get onto the kinder transport train um, out of Poland. Five hours later, Poland was invaded. And he set up life in England as a young 15-year-old boy, leaving behind his whole family, who all very tragically were murdered in the camps. And he set up life here, and he's he's got this lifelong admiration for the kinder transport scheme, which essentially saved his life. Mm -hmm. And he talks almost reverently about it, and he's very proud to be the last child to, to go onto the, the, the trains that saved his life. How did you... How did you set about researching the kinder transport? Because it was so beautifully woven in to the narrative. How did you go about that? I also actually was put in touch with um, a, a chap who came over on the kinder transport. Oh, amazing. Amazingly. So I had gone to, to Leipzig to do quite a lot of research. The book's all set in Leipzig. And um, while I was there, I met someone who then put me in touch with this chap. And amazingly, he had grown up in the same street as my father's cousins knew he knew a lot of my various aunts uncle I don't know who they (laughs) various relatives and when I meet him in London he opened the door and he looked at me and he said I can see you're a fine you've got the fine oh Oh, that's the hairs on the back of my neck up did you you didn't know this before this was just Incidental, yeah. <gasps> incidental and um he was 13 when he came over on the kinder transport he is sadly now dead in fact he died about three months after I'd met with him oh. yeah so he was I think he was 94 at the time I met him yeah he just told me all of his experience how he'd come over he he was actually put into a boarding school I think and he you know he made a big success of his life and he's yeah. his family actually had owned um uh, there were sort of department stores that were quite prevalent in Germany at the time. And during Kristallnacht, they, because his his depart, his family's department stores were very, very popular with the locals and they handed out food and all kinds of stuff. When During Kristallnacht, they actually surrounded the department store and wouldn't let anyone destroy them. <laughs> they, oh, really? Family's department store. Anyway, after the war, he went back to Leipzig. He didn't live there. He never lived there again, but he was invited back by the mayor. And and he was shown some newspaper clippings of something that had happened to him that he'd completely blanked from his memory. Really? It was that he had been hauled up to the front of the classroom when he was at school. He was at an ordinary German school pulled up to the front of the classroom, told, you know, this is a Jew, he has no right here, and thrown out of school. And it had been so traumatic for him that he had blanked that whole experience. But it comes into my book. I have have 
a scene in my book which is kind of similar to what happened to him powerful that you've got that opportunity to speak with him that is yeah. more precious than gold I think you couldn't yeah. have found that in an archive or the, the fact exactly. that you had a connection with him yeah he's and you know these people are there's hardly any of them left now so it's extremely I mean how valuable and precious that you did get that opportunity because it's those little stories isn't it those that you you can't uncover that actually in researching through books I don't think or listening yeah. to all archives you have to sit down face to face Yes, exactly. How amazing. He might have sat next to Henry on the train or I wonder, you know, <laughs> what an extraordinary moment. And for him to have known your relatives as well, for you to have that. Yes, I know, incredible. Yeah, so sorry, I slightly digressed from your question. No, 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 in, in a wonderful way. Though. I wasn't expecting that. That's. Um... I did research, obviously, um, you know, reading books and testimonies and, and all of that, but, but those oral discussions... I met with people as well in Leipzig, a professor of Aryanization, and, and I got a lot of information from various people over there as well. Great, amazing. And one thing, when, when I was reading this, and I was talking about your experiences of, of, what did you say the gentleman's name was that was on the kinder transport? Do you know what? It, I didn't mention his name, and it's now, <laughs> now of course, I can't remember. Because... It, because I'm putting you on the spot. But I think one of the things I was... I, Interesting, and I, I was thinking about this with Henry. Is this scheme was was nigh on eighty years ago, or maybe slightly more? And yet, you can't help but look at it in the current day. You would feel like back then the British government embraced this scheme for dispossessed and persecuted children. And in fact, they even had another scheme, didn't they, in the post-war years, where they took a lot of children that had been in the camps and brought them to the Lake District to try and sort of right. program, wasn't there? There was a program. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but it was it was unbelievable. A dramatization of the children yeah. that were sent to the lakes. Yeah. Anyway, there seems to be all these quite pioneering and, and humanitarian schemes. And yet 80 years or so on, it's a very different climate for refugees. Do you feel I can't help but feel sad when I uncover these things when I'm researching? Or I think how different would it be today? Yeah, you know, I don't I, I don't know how different it is because I so think when they, agreed to, when they agreed to take those 10,000, it was meant to be temporary. It was meant, of course, nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody really knew. I mean, they kind of knew, but not in any way until the concentration camps were discovered after the war, the extent of, of it. But it was meant to be temporary until they could go back and be reuni reunited with their parents. And I was thinking about, I mean, I've thought a lot about it and I think we we do have a proud history of taking in refugees, but it's always been limited. So there were the 10,000 that was limited. There was presumably a limited number that came after the war. And even now, I mean, you know, we have taken Ukrainian refugees in. True, true. yeah. After a few yeah. hiccups. But... Uh, and I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but, you know, what about Afghanistan? What about people of different colours? And I and it is, I think, if it's Europe, I think there's di a different standard or a different... Uh, yeah, yeah, like us. Yes, and, and that is not right because we are all people at the end of the day. Which um, is exactly the theme that you tackle in your book, really, isn't it? you know people yeah, that was like us. Good. <laughs> so, yes exactly 
the idea behind it. Um, I would just also say, because I've had that brain blank, that the gentleman that I met, his name is in the back of the book in my... Okay. Office, so if you want to read all about him, you can. <laughs> so sorry, I'm too... No, don't worry. We listen, we all have those moments. I get them every day. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but oh no I, I thank you for sharing that and you you can read all about him as well in, in the back of the book but so maybe on is what surprised you most because I always find when I'm researching something there's always something that sticks with me and that, and I love the surprises in history as well but what stood out to you when you were researching and writing so I suppose one of the things that stood out for me was the fact that there wasn't more of a a rebellion against the Nazis, and there weren't more resistant groups um, that that were in Germany at the time. There were a few, but they were very disparate and small. That's one thing. And the other thing that really surprised me, which actually inspired the next book that I wrote, The Hidden Child, was the fact that a lot of the eugenics ideas that were propounded in Germany which I had always thought came from the Nazis themselves, um, were taken directly from the UK and from America. And that had really shocked me because it was not, I feel it was that widely known. No, it's not, is it? And it's obviously been downplayed because that's not a part of our glorious history, is it? I, I found that, I read that, your other book of that as well about, and I was absolutely stunned to the degree that this eugenics movement had taken off in England. Mm. Um, and a lot of the Nazis, Nazi policies were literally lifted in word for word from some of the statues in statutes in California. They were lifted word for word. Wow. So, yeah. Not such a, a part of our illustrious past that we're keen to shine a light on. But how exactly. wonderful that you can do that through fiction, that you can present this. Because this yeah. is a way to get people to understand and to care about it, isn't it? Is by presenting yeah. fictional characters, but setting it against a backdrop. Yes, exactly. Backdrop, like the eugenics movement in the 30s. And I'm not sure who said it, but it's some someone very famous, I'm sure, said something about, you know, the most truth is said in fiction or something along those lines. Yeah. yeah. Because it's true, actually. And also a lot of people may not pick up something non-fiction thinking it's going to be dry and you know not that relatable whereas with fiction you 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 draw people in don't you definitely definitely and I've, I've always had a bit of a strange relationship with this because I've written fiction and non-fiction but grand as I go on and I hope become more experienced I lean in more now to the writing of fiction because I've come to see that it's the perfect vehicle actually to get people to care about it and I think it was Barnes and Noble put a display of all their historical fiction, which I was very pleased that the Little Wartime Library was part of, and they put up a post, and I really agreed with it. It said, reading history books as allows us to understand what happened. Reading historical fiction allows us to be moved by what happened. And therein lies the difference. We have an emotional connection to characters. Yeah, yeah 100%. And lingers long in the memory. So I will remember your character, Hetty, and because of that, I will then learn... And I think it's what people always say is like once you start learning about that and you love that character, you fall in love with them, then you start Googling the kinder transport and you start uncovering and finding out more. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think, although, I mean, there is some excellent narrative nonfiction, which is kind of, Of you know, along a similar line in that you you are telling the, you know, a true story, but in a very um, relatable sort of way. 
For sure. And I think a lot of that's down to how it, it's written, isn't it? I, I read an amazing book by Ali Rubenhold, The Five, which talked about the victims of Jack the Ripper. But because of the way she'd written it, it was non-fiction, beautifully researched, but because of the way she'd written it, it was such empathy and care and giving yes. these victims back their voice. I felt it. So I think, yeah, I, I don't think you can broadly stereotype all books like that. But but fortunately for us, as historical fiction writers, people do veer towards learning about it in the past that way. Yes. Why do you think readers connect to novels that are based in truth? Because I find so often when my new book came out, people always say, oh, I really like the fact that it's a true story. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a good one, isn't it? I mean, and and I think I think because it's a true story, it feels more authentic, maybe. Um, and we like authenticity, don't we? And I think whatever book, if you and I like, I love a book with a historical note at the back. Um, oh, I have to read it first. <laughs> I go to the back first <laughs> because you want to know which parts are true and which parts aren't and that is the beauty of historical fiction isn't it because you can fictionalize the gaps in the middle that we don't know about and you did that brilliantly with the um the little lost the, now look listen I keep giving <laughs> names of books wrong your wartime library so many books out there that's fine but <laughs> <laughs> um I love that story so much and I think that's that's because yes we know we know it happened we know it's true but you dramatize it you bring it to life with the fictional characters or um, that are inspired by true things. Agreed, agreed. And it's sometimes, and you'll know this, it's a hard line to, to walk sometimes, isn't it? To how, mu how much sort of creative license do you take with various characters? I'm always a bit on, I always struggle a little bit with this. So in my book, and I, I'm sure it's the same with yours, I've had some people that, who just walk into your imagination fully formed. So like Mrs. Chumley in my book was a real woman. She was an air raid warden down, yeah. down the tunnel. She'd been, a, um, she'd been in the Great War. She didn't, I think her, her fiancé was killed. So she was a sort of spinster. And I know nothing about her beyond that. And then she walked in to, and I thought, well, I have to have her like that. And I actually want to call her by her real name. But of course, it's what what created to what degree do I create this character around a woman I know existed, but for whom I don't know nothing else. And I think it might even be you, Louise, that said to me that you that you wrestled with this. And then you thought, well, actually, this is my version of her. This is my interpretation of her character. And that's how I sort of make my peace with it, because some people might go, well, why are you featuring a real woman when you know nothing about her? Is that not taking liberties with the past? But I've, I've made my peace with that now. I think actually this is my, as long as you take a duty of care with the research. Yes. Do as sympathetic and as accurate as you can representation. This is your way of paying tribute to that character and that person. Yeah, very much so. And that's an, an author was springing to my mind when you were talking about this, and that's Jill Paul. Oh, yes. Um, I'm um, too. Yeah. It's about real people. And I think she does it so well. Because it's exactly that, as you say, it's about finding your peace with them as 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 their personality. You you can bring it to life. But I think I think the line is like, if it's a real person and you know that say they were, you know, in England and you portray them being in Italy for a, you know, 10 years when they weren't, that's that's not quite right so I don't think if there's a factual evidence of something you can change it too much <laughs> um yeah. do you know what I mean but the, the, yeah if, 
exactly but if you're telling a story about them and inventing their sort of their personality I think that's that's kind of fine as long as it's along the lines of what you know about them and I think I think that's harder to do with a big name in history that people know quite a lot about and biographies have been written and all the rest of it but if it's just an ordinary person or something we don't someone we don't know that much about I think it's completely fine I absolutely agree yeah. Um, Louise, can we talk a bit about routine? I always like asking writers about their routines and how they work, because it's a whole mysterious world in which, and everybody has a different way of working. How do you, what's your writing routine? So I suppose in theory, I write during the school day um, or when it's school holidays or when I've got a deadline I will work in the evenings or work early mornings as and when I need to um but like I say things always seem to come and disrupt my <laughs> my working pattern exactly. yeah trying to do is if I'm writing a first draft or a redraft or something where I haven't got a specific you know big deadline I try to work on a word count so I try to write between one and one and 1,500 words a day, um, sort of five days a week. And then I feel like I'm on track to to get a first draft done. If I've got a deadline, it it never really works. You have to sort of just no. time when you when you when you have it. So I will work evenings sometimes or just as and when. Yeah, um, when structural it comes in, it's yeah. There is no, it's just there is no way around it. But to, yeah. And I think I think the hardest part of the process actually is writing that first draft when you need to be in the headspace Um, and that's when I like to have a chunk of time if I can so try to carve ideally sort of three hours of the morning out and then to get my words done and then try and deal with the other things I agree it's so hard that first draft because you're getting to know your characters essentially they're becoming known people to you I often liken it to like when you go to a party and you don't know anyone and you have to make, you know, slightly awkward small talk with someone. That's how I feel when I first start writing my characters. Yes, exactly. There is no way around it. You have to keep turning up to the page and yeah, in different situations and getting under their skin until finally they they start to do things that surprise you maybe. But that's the most painful part for me. And it, it's it. 100% the first draft is the most painful part and actually when your characters start doing things that surprise you then you know it's working and then you're more likely to show up and think okay well, I'll, I'll spend a little longer here and you you go to your your mac or your pc or whatever with a spring in your step because you think oh I'm starting to get to know them and that's the wonderful that's yeah. where the magic I suppose if you want a better word happens yes <laughs> now um Louise you very kindly sent me the description for your next book which um it's so it sounds so amazing and I'm going to read it out if that's all right because I know readers who love books about books will devour this but so it goes like this it's 1962 and the world is teetering on the brink of nuclear war but daily life must go on South London girl Celia longs for a career, but with no means, connections or qualifications, she spends her days at the till of a dusty antiquarian bookshop on the Strand, unable to see a way out. The day a handsome American walks into the shop, she thinks she might have found it. Just as the excitement of a budding relationship engulfs her, she learns a devastating secret that draws her into the murky world of espionage. Tell me 
me more about this book because I absolutely love the premise of it. So the idea for this book really first came about because I wanted to explore the world of women before the second wave of feminism happened. So during the war period, women actually had a lot more freedom than they did sort of in the 50s and the early 60s. Um, where they were sort of expected to go back to the kitchen and, um, you know, have babies and create this this lovely sort of life after the war. And I wanted to explore the idea of what happened if you're a woman and you did not comply with what was expected of you. So that was really where the where the idea came from. So I sort of had a dual. I've got, it, it is a little bit of a dual timeline, although the majority of the book is set in 1962, but there is a 1940s thread as well. The premise of it sort of developed again as I researched. Of course, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in, in 1962, and it sort of passed a lot of people by as far as I can work out. I mean, everyone knew it was happening, but we had no concept in London of just how much danger we were in and also no real concept at the time of how close we came to nuclear war. That all came out years and years later. And see, still, even now, things are coming out about it that, that weren't known for years and years. So I was quite intrigued by all of that. And it was also at the height of the sort of Soviet spy networks that were really active in London and, and the States at the time. So I sort of got sucked into that aspect of it. Also the fact that during the war, because the there's there's no secret of the fact that the, the wartime period is is about the SOE, the, the secret operations executive, which was Churchill's sort of secret sabotage unit of, of random people that were sent over to France and um, Netherlands and other places to um, to disrupt the German war effort. And they recruited a fair number of women. So my storyline is about one of those women who was sent behind enemy lines into France. This is, I think, if I'm right, this is the first time you've had a dual timeline. And I always really admire anyone that can pull that off because you're, you're operating... On one hand, in the in I think nineteen forty two, I think um, during the Second World War, but then combining that in the sixties, how did you find that? Because that was a first for you, was it? Doing this dual timeline? Uh, yes, it is actually. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have to think about that. <laughs> no, it is, and um, and yeah, of course, the strands have to come together uh, mm-hmm. in some way. I'm slightly grappling with that for my next project <laughs> as a speak. It is a challenge, but I really wanted the majority of the book to be set in the in the present day, which is the 1962. So there's the book's actually in five parts, and there's at the beginning of each part, there is a section from 1942. That's sort of how I structured it. I could have told it in a different way, but I just felt it was nice to be plunged into that world. Um, and so that's why I chose to do it, really. It was just... I really admire writers that do it, because I love, as a reader, I love it. I love being taken, you know, one chapter, I'm in the in the Second World War, and then you're somewhere else. I don't know what it is that... It's just more exciting, I think, that the range and the kind of time-hopping. Is... Yeah, it's. I was slightly ambivalent about doing it, because I sometimes think it's you know sometimes you can be more as a reader you can be more fond of one time 
than another and I didn't want to I didn't want to upset that or it can take you out of the story when you keep going back and forth but but I'm hope <laughs> hopefully <laughs> I've to, uh, to to work it so yeah. I think but, if they're interlinked and I know as a reader that they're interlinked and I wonder how's this all going to come together I think it's Kate Quinn who does it really beautifully I think she did it yes yeah. yeah, she did yeah, and I think that's so clever because you know these two worlds are going to collide and you're learning and each character is being informed by the character from the, from the different time stage. So it's a really clever device if it's done well. Yeah, and I think it was it was kind of necessary for this book because it is also partly a mystery. So it's unravelling the mystery as you go through through the book as well. And I love that it's in a bookshop because who doesn't love a dusty bookshop a shop on the Strand? <laughs> How did tell me a bit about that? How did it, what gave you the idea for that? Well, the idea for that without giving any plot spoilers away came once again out of research because this is a story inspired by real events and things that happened and real people. And I have changed names and places, but a bookshop was part of this story. So it was a very easy one to take on board. And yeah, I mean, just relishing the the story that happens between the shelves. And um I would not want to read a book about espionage set in a bookshop. I would buy that just on that premise alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, my protagonist loves books and she she, you know, she she finds escapism in books as we all do. So it's yes, it's a bit of a love of book story as well and it's quite zeitgeisty isn't it because we were talking about this earlier but books set in libraries or bookshops seem to be virtually a genre in their own right so for example I'm thinking the Paris Library the Librarian of Burn Books the last bookshop in London for example are doing really successfully doing really well why do you think they have such a hold on our heart what is it about the notion of reading about librarians and booksellers that seems to captivate us so yeah, I I don't know. Um, I think because as readers, we are also book lovers. And I don't know about you, but I mean, some of my earliest, happiest memories were from going to the library every week oh, with my yes. mum to choose oh, yes. this book. And it's like my happy place. The same with a bookshop. I go into a bookshop and it's like my happy place. There's all these books. It's living in the bath, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose as readers you know that is just it's for all of us it's a it's a it's partly a place of sanctuary it's a place where we all you know there's nothing better is there than to talk about books <laughs> books yeah. We, yeah. Um, and so it it taps into that I suppose yeah I agree and then when you were saying that about going to the library with your mum when you were little and just your face lit up there and it was the same for me like as a child growing up I used to go to the library once a week with my mum and it was a ritual, but it was one that I loved. And I can still smell the library as I walked in. And yeah. I with no architectural beauty, it was a sort of post-war civic centre concrete box. And there was always, <laughs> it's a scratchy grey carpet. And there was like these slightly dying spider plants behind the desk. But I just, I can't explain it. Even now, I feel happy when I think about it. I feel like yeah. when I used to walk through the door, just having an access to all those stories that I used to devour and love and, I don't know just a sense of peace to come over yeah. me I have very fond memories of it and I don't and I suspect you're going to be the same but I don't think I would be a writer now 
without those trips to the, the library, without the access to those stories and those books. A hundred percent agree. And I still remember the feeling when I'd come out of the library hugging my books and that sort of slight anticipation, warm, exciting feeling that I could yeah. dive into these these books and their worlds and I knew that I had that to come. You know, what did you used to read, Louise? What were your favourite <laughs> growing up? Now I'm going to embarrass myself, but I love Enid Blyton. No, there's no, don't feel shame on that. That's slightly embarrassing. Like, but, you know, she writes a great story. Do you know, do you know where that comes from, though? Is um, I remember my mum telling me she came back from a parents' meeting at school and the teacher had sort of castigated her that I was reading Enid Blyton because there wasn't good enough vocabulary and I should be reading, you know, more, you know, better books than that. And my mum had said, I don't care what she reads as long as she's reading something. Good for your mum. How amazing of your mum to do that. Because uh, I just loved them. And of course I did eventually move on to other things, but that was what I think really ignited my love of, of stories and books. Um, yeah. Funny that that teacher said that to your mum and I was quite surprised researching the little wartime library I found a very similar sentiment expressed that oh you know in and she's not she's not a good writer and yet she is the writer that might that encouraged most children to fall in love with reading yeah um, and, and her books have stood the test of time as well right so she can't have been that bad can she I mean <laughs> <laughs> but no I so I so agree and I, that, that she I used to devour her books as well growing up I used to love I just remember the concept of thinking like all these children um famous five particularly just yeah. roaming the countryside with no adult around and having all these incredible adventures I just <laughs> felt so wild to me that they could do that and why couldn't I do that <laughs> yeah I know <laughs> yeah so I'm going to I, I'm asking Louise, all my interviewees, these three final questions. And I think we might have covered this, actually, because one of them is your favourite childhood book. Is there one in particular that stands out out of being in Blyton? Well, again, I was, well, it's a series, really. So I was going to say The Famous Five. Um, yeah. It was those yeah. adventure stories. I can still remember them and the plots and the adventures and not being able to put the books down. Um, and that, yes, that that feeling that you wanted to keep turning the pages and... Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Um, what's your favourite library? And it doesn't have to be the one that you went to as a child. It could be any library that you visited. Well, I was going to say two, actually. And, the, the well, my very earliest memory of a library was the travelling library, which we don't have anymore. Ooh. So we used to have, I don't know whether it was because we lived slightly out in the country, but we used to have this library that drove, it was a truck and it drove to the end of our road and it had, it had sort of, um, it must have had glass at the top because there was light that came in from the top. And I, I must have been really quite small because I still remember it being massive and I'm sure it wasn't that big. And the children's shelves were all at the bottom at the back. And I used to go and sit on the floor and look through the children's books while my mum looked at the others. And, oh, um, oh, I love that. One of my earliest memories, actually, was... Really? The library. That's yeah. special. I wonder if it's still there. Probably not. Well, I, I guess I think they used to have them around the country, but not anymore. Um, and my my more recent library is uh, Teddington Library, where I used to live in Teddington. Oh, I know it well, yeah. 
do you? <laughs> yeah, I don't live so far from Teddington, so yeah. I, okay, and I used to take my children all there when they were little for story time, and they did all their summer reading schemes from that library, and they've stocked all my books as well, so they get a oh, there you go. Place in my heart. Library. I'm yeah. going to tag them in this post when I release it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you were to set off to a desert island with only one book, what would it be? Well, probably it would be a survival manual. <laughs> I would have no other way to survive. But I don't think that's the answer you're looking for. So um, I was going to say probably Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice because it's a book I often I well, I reread from time to time, and it always it always engages me. It always I find something else in it, and her choice of dialogue, everything about the book, I think, is amazing, and it always makes me feel warm inside. So I will take that alongside the um... <laughs> but in, in continuity, almost isn't there in rereading? Yeah. Yeah, you, like you say, you'd always find a nugget of something as you as we get out, get older and age and go through life's journey, etc. We change, don't we? So when you read a book, you notice something that you might. And I hope I always think as we get older, I like to think that we get more empathy. And so when yeah. you read a book, you see yeah. something that the author might have expressed that we hadn't picked up on before. Yeah, so and I think whenever you come to read a book you're in a slightly different place in your life or your mood or whatever it is. And so maybe you pick up on different things that you'd missed or not seen, not stood out to you before in a different way. I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, Louise, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I cannot wait for to see the new book. I don't think we discussed the name. What's the name of the new Are you allowed to say what it is? I am. I am. The name's been revealed, just not the cover yet. Um, so it's called The London Bookshop Affair and it is out on the 30th of January 2024. Amazing. I will be one of the first queuing up to read that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Louise. Take care now. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.